Welcome to Addiction in the Family, episode 43, Rising from Tragedy to Become a Warrior in Hope, with Valerie Silvera. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addiction's affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't, I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction is spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family. My name is Casey Arriaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mine Out Emotional Wellness Center in Texas. And I'm the author of the books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, and Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality. And I'm Kira Ariaga, addiction counselor intern and recovery coach at Windmill. Casey and I were in our addictions together for over 10 years and have now been in recovery together for almost twice that long. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but just as important is that Kira and I have lived the experience of being family to addiction as both children and adults. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, we talk with Valerie Silvera, who shares her journey from being obsessed with trying to save her daughter from addiction and facing some of the most difficult experiences of her life, to founding Warriors in Hope, her organization that seeks to help others overcome great adversity. We discuss how to go on after tragedy and not let addiction and devastation become the whole story, and how vital it is for family members to find their own journey and their own recovery. All this and more after a break to hear from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. I'd also like to let you know that Windmill Wellness Ranch now has a free course available to any family or friends of anybody with any addiction. The course is available at windmillfamilycourse.com. Once you go and sign up for free, you'll get a weekly email pointing you towards blog posts, videos, and podcast episodes that help carry a message of hope. Sign up today at windmillfamilycourse.com. Welcome back. Let's go ahead and hear that interview with Valerie Silvera. So welcome to the show. Happy to have you on Addiction in the Family. Why don't you take a moment and introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us what are you doing on a show called Addiction in the Family? Well, thank you, first of all, Casey, for having me. It's really my honor to be a part of what you're doing. I guess I would say that it's not a journey or it is not a mission that I sought after. It's one that found me. And I would say that a lot of people that have anything to do with addiction could probably say the same thing, right? In a very, very short summary, 
My daughter, Jamie, who I said was the most brilliant person I'd ever known. I thought she'd be the first woman president. She met her addiction beast when she was 15. And she entered this world that we just couldn't seem to get her out of. And we didn't know what was happening, like a lot of people. And by the time she was 18, her ex-boyfriend shot her. And it was near fatal. From there, you know, I kind of thought that that would be the thing. That would be the moment. You know, how much worse could life get? But it wasn't. I was going to have to put on my seatbelt and, you know, strapped on my shoulder harness because my ride on the roller coaster from hell was about to get a lot worse. So this had been a three-year period. And over the next decade, her life just spun further and further out of control. And I don't have to get into all the gory details that unfortunately go along with people living with that addiction beast. But I think what a lot of people don't understand, really don't understand, is what the families go through and how we're not helping the situation. Because the further her life spun into darkness, the, I, I literally was losing myself. And I felt like the worst mother in the world. I was covered in shame and guilt. I couldn't save my daughter. And I thought it was my job to do so. And literally at my lowest point, I said to my husband one day, I don't want to be here anymore. And that's how I felt. It was just so hard to live with that dark cloud hanging over your heart. And I like to say I was living on my roller coaster from hell for 13 years. And it's kind of interesting though, Casey, because sometimes our lowest points can be the most important. And it was literally in that moment when I said, I don't want to be here anymore that I thought, no, you know, this can't be my legacy. What am I showing my daughter, Jamie? And what am I showing her that when times get tough, we give up? So that's really when I decided to stand up and fight for my own life, my own recovery from life and to reclaim my life. So that's what I did. I, I decided to stand up and fight. And of course I had no idea where I was going or how I would get there. I just knew that this wasn't acceptable for me and it wasn't gonna be my legacy to be the sad, lonely woman. And then Jamie had a younger brother, Sean, that. You know, he's watching his only sibling self-destruct and he's watching his mom self-destruct now, even though I was pretending a lot that I wasn't. So I just thought, no, I'm going to figure out how to stand up and fight. And so that's what I did. And I, and I wrote my first book, which is called Still Standing After All the Tears. And I just literally, I'm sure you hear this story a lot, but it's true. I thought, what if one person could figure out how to find their way out of the darkness from my story? And so that's really where it all began. And now I've got a movement called Warriors and Hope. And it's really to help women or anybody, but mainly a lot of moms who are in that same situation have found their way to my story and they identify so much with my story. But I, I really want to help them to not be victims, how to shed the shame and the guilt that goes along with it and to live with hope and courage. It takes a lot of courage to find your way out of that dark place. It absolutely does. And you talked about all the feelings that came for you when your daughter got shot when she was 18 and then saying it actually thought, hey, that's going to be it. And then it went downhill from there. And I wonder, your journey as a mother is such a powerful story. That's kind of her story. What was going on inside you when you were looking at that shame? Like what messages did you pick up or were you giving yourself about motherhood and your role in things? Well, you know, what's interesting about that, Casey, as far as shame goes and stigma, I didn't have to really wonder what other people were thinking of me because guilty is charged. I used to look at 
people who had sons and daughters who were in addiction or doing illegal things or just on a really bad path. And I pointed my finger at the parents. I said, you know, it's how you raise your kids. I really thought that if I raised my children right and I was a good example and I taught them about integrity and they lived in safe places, you know, and on and on it goes, that I could somehow control their journey. So I call it standing on my soapbox. I mean, I would literally say it's the parents' fault. And then it happened to me. And I fell off that soapbox and, you know, got a hematoma on my head there. <laughs> I fell so hard. I just had to decide. I had to decide to say, you don't know until you've walked this journey what it's like. I also like to say that, you know, if you're wondering what moms of those in addiction look like, they look like you. We look like everybody else. The addiction beast doesn't give a rat's what your background is, how much money your parents make, what your ethnicity is. It doesn't care what your religion is. The addiction beast wants everyone. He's an equal opportunity life destroyer. So I just decided to start standing up and, and sharing my story. And it's amazing how many people got the courage to then share theirs. And I'm not saying that we should sit around sharing all the sad, gory details of it. It's really being a voice to say that this does and can happen to anyone. And as you know, there are so many facets to addiction that need to be addressed that thankfully a lot are being addressed. I don't have the answer for all of those. I just know that for every person in addiction, there's typically a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister. So it's multiples, you know, it's every person in addiction times, whatever the fallout, the impact. And if we self-destruct, that compounds the problem. And thank God I stood up to fight when I did, because a couple of years later, I got the knock on the door that no parent can ever prepare for. I, you know, you sort of half expect, or you think you won't be surprised if you get a call or a knock on the door saying that your son or daughter overdosed, but my daughter was murdered. And that's a whole nother part of addiction that people don't understand. You know, it's a dangerous lifestyle that a lot of them are living in. And while I knew that, I understood how dangerous it was. I never really imagined. Um, really nothing can prepare you. No matter how strong you get, no matter you know how well you think you are, you really can't prepare for that. Yet at the same time, you can, because it took me a very short period of time to decide that I would stand up and fight again. And you mentioned something earlier that made me think about this, that Jamie's legacy is not going to end with addiction and murder. That's not going to be the end of her story. And it's not going to be the end of my story. And I think what we do sometimes is when we have any of these kinds of traumas is we put a period, right? We put a period at the end of the, the story, that part of your story, you put a period, that's it. That's the end of the story. I chose a comma. I said, no, her, her story is not going to end like that. She did matter. She mattered even in her addiction. She mattered. I've heard from so many people. And I think this is one of the things that's a really important message is that I was speaking with somebody recently whose daughter died and she's out there with a big message and, and everything. But she said to me off camera, you know, I raised my daughter, right. And I raised her in the church and I did all of this. And she was raised in privilege, you know, all the stuff that you think will matter. And she said, and in the end, it didn't matter. And I told her it did matter though. Everything matters. And 
I've heard from so many people that uh, Jamie's friends in and out of addiction, that she was a wonderful person. She was a great friend. You know, people in addiction aren't sitting around with a needle in their arm 24 hours a day. They have a life. And I'm not saying it's good to be in addiction. I would much rather she weren't. But I think that it's important for parents, especially to know that it did matter. It does matter because the shame and the guilt, that's what happens. I go through the list a thousand times. What was the thing that I did? It was all about me. What was the thing that I did that caused it? That decision I made or did not make? There had to be something, right? Had to be my parenting, remember? I used to blame it on the parents. When you can't figure that out, you drive yourself insane and you just literally think, I've let everybody in the world down. I'm a terrible parent. I've let God down. He gave me this precious gift and this is what I did. And you beat yourself up until really there's not much left of you. And one day I literally looked at myself in the mirror and I said, Valerie, if you could have saved Jamie, this was before she died. I said, if you could have saved her, you would have done it a long time ago. I mean, it's such an epiphany for me. And that has actually been an epiphany for a lot of other parents to go, wow, it's not that I didn't love her enough. I didn't pray enough. I didn't try enough. I didn't spend enough money on rehabs. You know, it's not that I didn't guilt trip her enough. It isn't that I didn't do any of it enough. I never had that much power. I never had control in the first place. And it's a hard realization to come to, but it's important because I think the other thing that it does is it takes the pressure off the person in addiction. Because what we do, we guilt trip the heck out of them. We try to tell them this, tell them that. What about grandma? You know, we, we we're on them constantly because if you would just get better, then I could get better. And I thought to myself one day, I thought, God, this poor girl. And, and you know, I was mad at her because she didn't fight hard enough, I didn't think. But I was kind of mad at her. But at the same time, I thought this poor girl's already already carrying this vicious beast on her back. And then she's got to carry me too. So I just thought I've got to remove that pressure from her and step away from the journey that I didn't have control over. I don't mean step away from loving her. I always told her, I see you. I know who you are underneath the weight of that beast. I love you. There's nothing you could ever do that would take away my love. But I had to let her walk out that journey knowing that I was probably not going to be the one to make that big difference. And that's tough for parents. Absolutely. Is. Thank you so much for sharing all that. And I was scribbling down some notes as we went because you hit so many themes that I talk about in my family workshop and in my own work. And it's one of the things that gives me so much passion in what I'm doing and that I'm a family member of people with addiction. I've got addiction all over the family tree on both my birth family and also in my adoptive family. You can find addiction. Wow. I always say it's probably no coincidence that my adoptive family chose a kid who came out of chaos and addiction because who else would fit in their family, right? They they didn't think that logically, <laughs> right. I'm sure. They just looked and said, hey, that kid seems like he would fit here. <laughs> but this idea- I don't mean to laugh. It's oh, no, funny. it is funny. <laughs> One of the attributes that's considered so important in working in the field is the sense of humor. Like if we can't have a sense of humor, we're probably not going to make it. Oh my gosh, what a lifesaver that is. Absolutely. And yet you talk about that illusion of control because one of our main trauma responses that we have when we go through anything doesn't have to be about addiction, any kind of trauma is we stop and say, what in this was my fault? What could I have done differently? And I think that illusion of control is actually a protective mechanism because we think to ourselves, if I can figure out what I did, 
then maybe I can prevent this from happening in the future. But it's still an illusion. Right. Because we don't have that much control when it really comes down to it. In fact, I've told many of the parents that I've worked with, you don't have the power of life and death. I don't have the power of life and death. We're playing God, aren't we? We are. Well, we're saying I get to decide who lives and who dies. And if I hustle fast enough, or if I pray hard enough, or if I spend enough or whatever, then my loved ones will be okay. And yet the track record of human history does not bear that up. It just isn't true. Some of the most brilliant minds on earth have still lost their kids. It used to be assumed that this was just a part of life. No one liked it. It was tragic. But it was you just knew this might happen. And I talk about this a lot. We happen to live in a day and age where we assume, at least within our society and our little chunk of the world, that the kids are all going to make it. And if they don't, somehow we screwed up. And there's no evidence to say that that's true. Yeah. And you're right. Lots of people can get very judgmental. The idea, yeah, if I just raised them right. But I can tell you, I've worked at several different treatment centers and seen a lot of, I mean, I can't count how many outpatient clients I've seen, how many family members I've worked with, all that kind of stuff. And they're from every imaginable walk of life. And so sometimes at the treatment center right. where I work right now, one wellness ranch, I can walk in and we'll have some people who are coming out of a lot of privilege. And they're in treatment with people who are coming off the street homeless with no family support. And I tell all of them, look, there's somebody at the Salvation Army getting sober right now and turning their lives around. And they're homeless. They have no family support. Nobody's talking with them. Nobody's really on their side except for whoever happens to pick them up off the street and get them to the Salvation Army. But somehow that miracle is happening for them right now. But we don't know how long that's going to last either. Yeah. Right? I mean, life goes up and down. No, we don't know. And you know, it's interesting you say that about judgment, because I remember calling this treatment center one time, you know, ahead of the game here. I was trying to get ahead of the game. I'm pretty sure she's going to want to go this time. And I asked if they had any kind of, um, you know, special programs for someone who didn't have money. And they said, well, ours, you know, if you don't have any money, ours is $10,000. I was thinking, well, Jamie doesn't have $10. Uh, so, but there's this other treatment center and, and, you know, a lot of our counselors have come from that treatment center and it, they, she was, it was highly regarded by her, but I knew where it was. It was right in the belly of the beast. And I said, oh, well, you know, I don't want Jamie to be around those people. You know what she said to me? Your daughter's taking street drugs. She is one of those people. Whoa. That was, that was an, an ear-opening, heart-opening, mind-opening moment for me with regard to judgment. Yeah, and I think so often, again, the judgment that people lay out there has partly to do with their own guilt and shame and whatever's going on inside of them. But I think it's, it is, again, another protective coping mechanism to say, that can't happen to me. Yes. Right, that, not, not my child. You've got it. That is exactly what it is. Yes. And so we fear. So then when it does happen to you, like you said, then you have to go through the list because once I can put my finger on it. Now, what's interesting, let's say I could put my finger on it. What can I do? I can't go back into the past. And so like I've told a lot of moms that, you know, unless you held your kid down and put a needle in them or stuff some drugs down their throat, it wasn't your fault. But when we have children or we adopt children, however they come into our lives, when you hold that child, you just know, you know, you can protect them. You know, you can keep them safe. You know, you can teach them everything. You know, nobody in a million years ever expects this ever. And so it's so far out of left field. And 
The other thing too is, so I lost my daughter. I mean, I obviously suffered the ultimate loss, losing a child. I don't know, at least in my experience, I have a permanent hole in my heart that hasn't shrunk one single bit, but you can live with joy and grief at the same time. I have learned to honor the hole in my heart, but I refuse to crawl inside of it. Uh, but I would say that when my daughter was in addiction, and I've seen this with so many families, is in some ways it's harder because you don't know when the phone call's coming, the knock on the door. My phone would ring and it'd be a, a number I didn't recognize. My heart would be in my throat. I didn't want to answer it. Then I was afraid not to answer it. You know, I guess really, Casey, what it comes down to is we want control and fear and love. And all of this is colliding together is we love this person more than life itself. I would have exchanged my life in a second for my daughter's. If that's how it worked, I would have signed up. I'd have been the first one in line. But of course, it doesn't work like that. But, you know, like it's out of the natural order. And yes, people have been losing their children for, you know, since the beginning of time. When your grandparents die, it's very sad, but it's not tragic. You know, it's tragic when your daughter only lives 30 years, seven months and four days. And 15 years of that was living in addiction. So I was losing her for 15 years. So I think with addiction... What happens is, right, we're losing our loved ones over a period of time, and then sometimes we ultimately lose them. So it's this constant living, and I call it paralyzing fear. We literally have to figure out how to live courageously, how to know, to know as a parent, which is almost seems crazy, to know that even if the worst happens, I will not only just be okay, but I can do something with it because I'm a firm believer that everything can be used for good. Everything, including my daughter's murder. It can be used for good. Absolutely. And this is something that when I talk with families about the idea, you know, we don't have the power of life and death, there is a power that we do have. And it's not about control. It's about recognizing that, look, here's this reminder in front of our face, whether it's a fear that it's going to happen or, as with people in your case, where it has happened to recognize that life is finite. This is a limited time offer. And what am I gonna do with that time? Am I gonna be on my loved one's case all the time saying, you gotta change, you gotta change, you need to change. And you said it beautifully, you need to be okay so that I can be okay. What a setup for everybody. Oh. You know, like you said, I and mean, I talk to the families all the time about this. What's nice is in doing the family workshops that I do, because I'm working with the families and the client there, is sometimes I'll just turn to the client and say, have you ever noticed that your mom needs you to be okay, that your dad needs you to be okay? And they'll say, yeah. I'll say, great. Are you ever tempted to be dishonest with them on that basis? Because you know if you tell them the truth, they're going to spiral down. Yeah. I said, okay, let's turn to the families. Would you want your kid to be honest with you? Mm. Well, yeah, of course I want that. I mean, do you want to hear when they're struggling? Well, yes, I wish they'd tell me. Well, then you have to learn to be okay when they struggle. Otherwise, you're going to be highly motivated not to tell you the truth. And the reality is, just like you said, they will feel like they're carrying the weight of the whole family. I need to disappear or pretend to be okay or whatever I need to do so that my family doesn't struggle. I don't want to be the black sheep. I don't want to be the burden on the family. And sometimes they'll think like, okay, well, then I just need to vanish and not talk to them or not tell them the truth when I do. So true. The way out of that game is for the family members to start embracing their own recovery. Right. Here's the other thing I tell people too. So let's say that your son or daughter gets into recovery and stays there. 
what about you? Haven't you changed? I mean, we just think magically everything. I got to do the air quotes, even though I know this is a podcast. Everything went back to normal, right? Yeah, it's called new normal. So we have changed. We have our own stuff to deal with. You know, and I, I mean, poor Jamie was like, you know, you get better, then I'll be good. No, I, I was actually talking about this at the family workshop at Windmill Wellness yesterday. I was telling the family members, because this came up, if you don't work on your own recovery, your loved one can get sober and be doing great. And they're like five years sober and they're kicking butt and you'll still be living in fear. Yes. You'll still be trying to subtly nudge them, control them. They will surpass you. Yeah. Well, you check on them and like, are you going to your meetings? Are you calling your sponsor? You're doing smart recovery, whatever it is, recovery stuff they're doing. You find yourself still smelling their breath when they come home or checking that you see if their pupils are dilated. It's like you never get to relax until you give yourself permission. Yes. And you can do that at any time. It sounds simple. It's not easy. When we went through a period of time when my daughter was younger and we thought we were probably going to lose her. And I just woke mm. up every day knowing today could be the day. This might be it. Horrible. I've told this story in the podcast, but the short version is I had to look her in the eye at one point and say, I can't keep you alive. I would love to, but I can't. You will have to decide if you make it or if you don't. You're old enough now that I can't run in the street and pull you out of the way. You're going to have to decide if you make it or not. And I'm rooting for you. You know, thank God you're able to do that, though, because so many are not able to. And it's funny. You said a bunch of things. And I kept thinking, I want to write this down and then quote Casey. And I need to write this one down and <laughs> quote Casey. But one of the things I think that's very powerful for parents, you know, it's three words. But it, it makes such a difference. And you you alluded to this, give yourself permission to matter. And so what happens with moms, especially, is we think when my son or daughter is self-destructing, what kind of a mom would I be to go on? What kind of a mom would I be to get myself better, to be happy, to go on vacation, to laugh, to have joy, to have peace? What kind of a person would do that while my child's on a freight train headed toward a brick wall? Well, what's funny is, again, in doing this family work, it's one of the reasons I'm so blessed to do it, is that I sometimes get a chance to actually ask the person with the addiction, do you need your parents to suffer? Well, no. Well, how would you feel if they were doing okay, even when you're struggling? And almost invariably, the person with the addiction comes back and says, I would be relieved. Please get your own recovery. Please live your own life. Don't make it dependent on mine. It actually, it gives permission for the person with the addiction to let go of their own guilt and shame, which I can tell you as a therapist, that guilt and shame is not doing them any favors in their recovery. Oh, it's suffocating. It, well, it can be. I mean, they, they, can, they could also choose to shrug it off. That's, it's not up to them. But for each person in the family to recognize, I don't have the power to make it all better. I don't have the responsibility to make it all better. And on that basis, we are free to just love each other. Yeah. And that, when I was talking earlier, you know, we don't have the power to control our loved ones' outcomes. We do have the power to love them now. We have the power to say, let's make the most of whatever time we happen to have. Because any of us, I mean, I might not make it to the end of the day, day today. I'm planning to, right. and I'll do what I can to make that happen. Today's the only day you're guaranteed. This is it, right now. Well, this is it. So, yeah, this is a great day to love the person not even despite of, but including their struggles. And I love what you said about the fact that the struggle is not the whole story. And you're talking about, you know, make it a comma. 
I don't know if you've seen this one, but I've actually seen it on a lot of people that I've worked with as a therapist. And I didn't know what it was at first. They'll have a tattoo often inside the wrist of a semicolon. Oh. And that represents the idea that my story didn't end here. Yeah. Yeah. So if you see that semicolon on anybody, they're saying sometimes it's more specific to like suicide, survival or prevention. But as you said, addiction is often a long, slow suicide attempt. Yeah. So when it comes down to it, like you said, whether it's the drugs that get somebody or the lifestyle around them, people get that kind of tattoo to say, my story doesn't just end there. And I think it's so powerful for you to say, my daughter's story doesn't just end here at this moment. And it's not defined by this one tragedy. It's not the only thing that happened in her life. And it's not the only effect she's ever had on anybody. Yeah. And I think that's what happens to people though, is that they they are, they don't want to talk about their loved one. They don't want to talk about the person in addiction. They don't want. So for us with Jamie, my son, it was interesting. My son, Sean, he struggled a lot with anger. He was mad at her. He had, you know, the first time she was shot, I know it's such a weird thing to say, but first time she was shot, he had to go back to high school and he was football practice. And we were in a small town. I lived in the Seattle area at the time, but he had to go back to school and everybody knew, you know, and everybody knew that it turned out the guy was a gang member. And my son was so ashamed and embarrassed and how could he do this? And he didn't want to talk about it. And he pretended. So he literally would kind of just try to forget about her. So he left with a lot of guilt that he had done this throughout these, well, for him, 15 years. And then after she died, he was so mad, you know, so mad at everything. So angry. And when her, any of her uh, anniversary days would come along, her birthday or her angel anniversary, those are, you know, can be tough days, those milestone days. Well, Sean decided, gosh, I'm going to make every day so much fun that I just look forward to him. He didn't even know that he was rewiring his brain. He was just trying to avoid crawling into a dark hole on each of those days. But it's turned out to be a phenomenal thing is that on her anniversary of her death, especially, and even on her birthday, we have people who've never even met her come. We have parties. We celebrate, we go do fun things. We talk about her, we tell funny stories about her. We wanna help people understand grief, at least for me, it didn't work like this. Okay, I'm gonna mourn for a period and then it'll be like, oh, that was that thing that happened. Like Sean says, I don't want people to think of it as that thing that happened. I mean, my sister who was murdered, you know, my sister who lived in addiction, it's not that thing. She was a part of my life, you know, and it's okay for us to talk about her. Why do we not talk about the addiction part of her life so much? Because why should we? I mean, we lived through it. We don't pretend it never happened, but we know who she was. And every single one of these people that is living with an addiction beast, that is not who they are. That is the beast living with them, talking for them, acting for them. I'm not making excuses. Anything that my daughter did that was illegal or whatever she did, she had to take responsibility for. I'm a firm believer in that. But I think it's important for us, like you said, with the semicolon or me, the comma, and people do this, Casey, you see this with people in your life everywhere. It could be an illness. It could be a divorce. It could be any number of things. And people go, well, you know, that's me. I'll put a big D on my forehead because I was divorced. Or me, like mom of an addict, you know, and we label ourselves and that's the story. That's not the story. I wanted to tell you something that I thought was really important. I didn't see Jamie for a year and a half when she, before she died. And I know that would be hard for a lot of people to understand, especially people who don't have sons and daughters in addiction, that 
it wasn't because I said, you can't be in my life. You know, it wasn't anything like that. We always had a, a loving relationship. It was because I told her, it's very important for you to understand what my life looks like because I want you in it more than anything, but it's only fair for you to know what it looks like. And it, you know, it's filled with integrity and people showing up for each other. And we don't have, it's not illegal drugs and people don't shoot each other. And, you know, it, it's just, here's the picture. And so she kind of just went off and, and did her thing. And in my opinion, it was out of respect. She did that. You know, I, I'm lucky because a lot of people don't have that. But anyway, so she sends me this email and it was a couple of series of emails. And she, one of the things she said to me was such a blessing for me, but I feel like it's a message to be carried to others. And she said, mommy, yeah, even at 30, she called me mommy. She said, mommy, I'm so proud of you. And after she died, they collected the few things that she had at this house. And one of them was my book one, one and a workbook. And she had been reading. And here's what the message is. She was never proud of me when I was guilt tripping her. She was never proud of me when I was crying in the walk-in closet. She was never proud of me when I was sending her pictures to remind her about her family. She was never, ever proud of me when I was self-destructing. She was proud of me when I stood up to fight, to reclaim my life, and to work on my own recovery. That's when she was proud of me. That is so powerful. And there's something that I hear in there, the idea that whether our loved one is still alive or not, we can honor their life and their journey through service and joy. Yes. And that's what I hear and what you're doing. Absolutely. You know, and in this idea that our illness does not define us. Yes. You know, if somebody has diabetes or dies of cancer, we don't tell that like that's the whole story or that's the only thing interesting. In fact, like you said, we'll acknowledge, well, they lost their tragic battle to cancer, but we don't say like, that's it. That's all you need to know about them. No, we're like, hey, Uncle Bob was funny and let me tell you some stories about him. Yeah. Exactly. And when somebody has diabetes and they're still alive, we don't just say, well, hi, that's who they are. Yeah. You know, oh, how's your kid doing? Oh, well, I don't want to tell you they've got diabetes. That's a shameful family secret. We would just say, oh, well, you know, life's going on. They do have to deal with this thing and all that. But of course, when it comes to any kind of mental illness, especially addiction, it's just a form of mental illness, people get more nervous because it's their brain. It's the control center. And people start making self-destructive and sometimes other people destructive choices. And that's hard to handle. Yeah. But it's no more a choice than the diabetes or the cancer. People don't choose to have an addiction. Yeah, it's kind of an odd one because... Those other ones you talk about, the sensible person will say, well, let me do something about this diabetes. You know, it's type two diabetes. I'm going to change my diet or, you know, whatever. And, and people choose different types of treatment. Addiction is the only thing I know that actually repels treatment, right? It's very different than most conditions out there. And it's frustrating. And you were saying something too about people not wanting to bring up your loved one, whether they're in addiction or they have died, they don't want to bring it up for fear, right? It, I don't want to remind them. You don't have to remind us. We already know. <laughs> we don't need any reminders. Trust me, there isn't a moment that goes by that a parent in addiction isn't thinking about it. And I think that it makes us feel like you are discounting our children or our loved ones when you don't ask. And it might be a painful conversation for you to have with somebody who's got a, a child or a loved one in addiction. It might be painful for you, but, you know, we all have to have courage in life. And if we care about people, we should be okay to say, 
How are they doing? How are you doing? But people avoid the situation like the plague. And then it makes us feel ashamed. It makes us feel like our loved ones don't matter. I honestly believe that some of it comes down to also just that basic fear, like maybe it's catching. Like if I admit that it could happen to you and your friend, that you know, well then maybe it could happen to me and my kid and I, oh no, we can't have that. Oh my gosh, yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons people don't want to talk about it. And also they just get awkward again when it comes to any kind of mental health. And I've pointed this out to a lot of people. I don't remember if I've said it on this show before, but if you ever want to see the difference, there's a little experiment you can run, which is figure out the visiting hours at your local medical surgical hospital and swing by and just kind of see what the atmosphere is like. You know, there's going to be some people who are crying and torn up. There's also going to be like balloons, flowers, cars, people singing hymns, prayer groups, people coming to visit, get well, hope you're doing well, all this kind of stuff. Right. Now pick another day, if you can, around a similar time, around the visiting hours at a mental hospital and go see what the atmosphere is like. <laughs> Nobody's there. Yeah, well, people show up. There's not a lot of balloons. There's not a flowers. There's not a lot of cars. There's a lot of people staring at their shoes. A lot of people avoiding eye contact with each other. That's a really, really interesting perspective. It has to do with mental health in general, because I love what you said, addiction repels treatment. And there's good reasons for that, biologically speaking and psychologically speaking. You know, we get into that, into why it is that it repels treatment. But actually, a lot of mental illness does. There's a lot of people with schizophrenia who do not want to take those medications, who don't want to come in off the street, who would rather live homeless because they don't trust anybody. And the families have to deal with that tragedy of like, my loved one will not accept treatment. They don't want to fit into what society has to offer. Yeah. Whether that's right or wrong, doesn't matter. It's just, this is what happens when the control center of our brain goes sideways. One of the reasons that I love working in addiction treatment is because when somebody really grabs onto a solution, and this goes for either the family member or the person with the addiction. It's not to say the person with the addiction who gets recovery when they come through treatment. Sometimes it's the family members who get it. And for the first time they recognize, wait, I could work on me. I could stop relying on my loved one to make me okay. And I could just cut out the middleman and learn how to be okay. It benefits everybody in the family. And miracles start to happen. And sometimes that is the key, which you're not doing it so they'll get better. You don't do that going, well, maybe if I get better, they'll follow me. But people are watching us. And I have had many moms say to me, you know, they thanked me for helping them get better and that their sons and daughters told them it's because of you getting better that I had the courage to get better too. You know, it, made, it makes a difference. And then guess what else, Casey? Sometimes it doesn't, right? I mean, we don't know the future. We don't know. We just have to do the best with what we have. And I just know that being a role model and, and we are, we're role models all around us. You know, we're leaders. I want my son, I wanted my daughter to see me fight because I was in my darkest days. I wanted them to know that in your darkest days, you can stand up and fight because I'm living proof. And so I think that you laying down on the mat with your beast on top of you, whispering in your ear and screaming in your face, you're a terrible mother, you're a terrible father. It's your fault. That's not helping anybody. You standing up and fighting is proof that it's possible. Powerful stuff and so true. This seems like a good moment to take a quick break and hear from one of our sponsors. And then we'll be back with the rest of our interview with Valerie Silvera of Warriors and Hope. 
Among our sponsors, the most important one is you. We are so grateful for your support and our mission to help people with addiction and their families find recovery. Here are some ways you can help. I have a website at caseyauthor.com where you can find all the various ways I'm working to spread a message of hope for anyone struggling with addiction and anyone who loves them. There you can find videos, interviews I've given on other people's podcasts, and information on both my books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, and Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, a primer. Both are available on Amazon and other retailers as both paperback and ebook. If you have read them, please tell a friend or anyone you think might be helped by their message. There's also a link to help support us on Patreon.com. Your subscriptions help make all this possible. If you'd like to become a subscriber, visit Patreon.com and look up Addiction and the Family. Thanks again. We couldn't do this without you. Welcome back. Let's go ahead and hear the rest of our interview with Valerie. I love that the fight is framed as you learning how to be your best self rather than the fight that so many people take on, which is I'm going to go get all the drug dealers. I am going to pull my child out of these circumstances that they don't want to be pulled out of, by the way. They weren't asking for that. No, no. My daughter, for the most part, honestly, didn't want to be pulled out of her circumstance. It drove me nuts. But I was reading The Strong-Willed Child when she was one, right? And I could never figure out why she seemed to kind of enjoy her, to me, horrible lifestyle. But, you know, you made me think of a mom who told me that when she found out her son, when he entered addiction, and, you know, same thing. Oh, she she adopted him and raised him right and thought everything was peachy. And when all of this started happening, she said that she did nothing but talk about addiction 24 hours a day. She almost lost her daughter's. She came to one of our events and her daughter told me, I never thought my mom would be there for the birth of my daughter because she, all she could think about was Matt. It was just 24 seven him. That's all she talked about at nauseum. And she just said a couple of days ago, she goes for that three year period that before she really you know got the help, she goes, I, I don't even recognize that person. When I look back, who was that woman? who was basically, like you say, stalking everybody, trying to, she just figured if she could find that answer, you know, that you're looking for that thing. As soon as you find that magic, you can just fix everything. And then she found the magic was to fix herself. Absolutely. That is beautiful. Yeah. If anyone figures out the magic lottery numbers for sobriety, you know, call us up, let us know. Well, you'll be a billionaire right away. There've been so many offers. I mean, just over the course of my 54 years on earth, when I was a little kid, boy, did I want to solve my dad's addiction? I bet. And it never crossed my mind that at the time, I'm at 10 years old, when I would have done or given anything for him to stop using alcohol, 10 years old, I was sliding into sex and love addiction and I couldn't see it. Wow. I just thought, here's a source of relief. This makes everything feel better. Never made the connection that, oh, wait, I'm doing something compulsive to make my life feel better. Maybe he's doing the same thing. Maybe he's not actually happy the way he is. Oh my God. I can't believe at 10 years old, you didn't figure out that connection. Oh my gosh. What's wrong with you? What's amazing is somewhere, <laughs> somewhere around that same time, I did figure out that I was the issue. Like if I could change me, my life would get better versus waiting for everyone else to change. But what never crossed my mind is that I could ask for help. Right. Well, nobody around you was asking for help. Well, that is true. And it was not encouraged. You know, talking about like emotional things was not encouraged within the family. So for all of my daughter's struggles, and again, the thought for quite a number of years there that like any day could be the day, was the idea that like, okay, well, again, we raised her in love. 
We raised her to speak openly about emotional things. We raised her that it's okay to ask for help. None of that kept her from struggling. It did give her some opportunities. And that must have been very hard on you. It was, yeah. It was It was hard, and especially during, as that's all unfolding, during that time, I'm studying to be a counselor. I was just going to ask you if you were in this field. Oh, my gosh. I wasn't yet. I was sort of moving into it. But as I was moving into it, as I was running family workshops, as I was getting into this part of my work, was when I started to recognize, wait a second, yeah, I can't change her outcomes. That's not going to be up to me. I can only love her where she is during whatever time we have together. Is she doing well now? She's doing better. Definitely. I mean, it's night and day compared to where she was at 13. She's now 26, getting ready to be 27. So literally half her life has been the struggle with mental illness and the thought that at any given time, this might be it. And the fact is, the couple of times she's gotten seriously suicidal where we thought this could be it. Uh, one of the times we did get her to hospital, the other one, we literally could not figure out her insurance card fast enough to actually get her to hospital on, I think it was like Christmas Eve or something like that. I mean, it was, it was a, wow. one of those big mess things. It has to be a holiday, of course. Yes. Of course. Well, both times when I look back, it was somewhat of an adverse drug reaction. Mm. Something she had been given for her mental illness lowered her inhibitions enough that the suicidality raised up. And she thought, I want to die now. Wow. I'll see. And then this is a whole nother discussion, isn't it? It is. It is. So it's, it's, it's its own thing. Yeah. But when I look back, what I'm proudest of is that I could just love her and support her knowing that this could be it. Like this may be the last moments we have together. I will try and do what I can so that that's not the case. I mean, luckily again, living in privilege in a society where I can say, let's get you to a mental hospital and all this kind of stuff, which turned out right. to be such a blessing. She got an accurate diagnosis, which was lovely. That didn't make everything go away. It just said like, okay, well, we have a name for it. Nice. That's better than not having a name for it and going from diagnosis to diagnosis. Yeah. But also I could just look and say, let me just show up for you as much as I can. And also please let me know the limits of that. I don't need to be Superman. I just need to be me and I'll try and show up as me and try and be honest with her when I'm frustrated, when I'm tired, when I don't have it in me to be able to say, yeah, I can't do this for you. So you're living your own advice. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything's always, when people go, well, it's easier said than done. Well, no kidding. Everything's easier to say it than to do it. I don't teach this stuff just for fun. I teach this stuff because I need to hear it too. Yes. And I need to be reminded of it every day. So we have just a few minutes left, but I'd like to take a couple minutes and let you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing, because you've really created something kind of beautiful and amazing out of this tragedy and out of also the joy of motherhood and of your life. Can you talk about that for a few minutes, what that is? Well, you know what the bottom line is? If I had to do it all over again, all of it, every single horrible, beautiful, all of it. I would do it all over in a second for the privilege of being Jamie's mom. I truly would. So the thing that I'm really excited about now is that I'm in Phoenix and we are having a two-day workshop, a two-day event. It's gonna, it's called the Freedom Experience and it's really helping people set themselves free from whatever is holding them back, keeping them down. And a lot of it has to do with shame and guilt and fear and 
and all of that. And um, that's going to be in Scottsdale on October uh, 6th and 7th. So I'm really excited because I, I did some events before called Still Standing, and now I'm kind of taking it to another level with Warriors and Hope and, you know, getting people to not just be standing, but to move forward. And we, as you can imagine, we have a lot of fun too. It's not just sitting in a seat, hearing people talk, you know, there's a lot of interaction and a lot of fun. And then the other thing that I'm doing is I have what I call the nine weapons of hope, and they've really helped a lot of people. And that is through my warriors and hope. And that is really a mission. I decided a couple of weeks ago, literally, I want to help a million women link arms. They don't have to use my programs or come to my events or anything like that. I just want a million of us to stand together as warriors in hope and live with courage and stop living in fear and stop being trapped by you know all these self-limiting beliefs. And like I talk about the beast, you've heard me talk about it a lot. Everyone has a beast. Okay. We know addiction's a beast. That's pretty obvious. Everybody has something. Everybody has something they need to deal with. So yeah, it's really helping. I say women, but we have men that come to our events and we have men that that join us too. But for some reason, it just seems to be women who reach out for help. You know, you talked about help more. I don't know if that's been your experience in your work, but it seems to be the women. So it's called Warriors and Hope. Everything can be found at ValerieSilvera.com. It's really an honor and a privilege. I would be lying if I said I was glad that, that this was my journey. I would go back and change it in a heartbeat if it worked that way. You know, Jamie'd be healthy and everything would be great. And she never met addiction before, but here we are. So I, I consider it an honor and a privilege that I can use my story to help anybody. I mean, I thought if I could just help one person, if I write this book and one person reads it, won't that be great? So I really do consider it an, a privilege that I can use my story to come alongside other people and, and be even just a small part of their story. And I also appreciate so much you having me. I admire the work that you're doing and truly, I mean, you can't see me if it's a podcast. I'm bowing down right now because anybody who works in the recovery field, it's, it's tough work. It's a labor of love. It's a mission. It's not something that you went out for the big bucks or, uh, right. <laughs> Cause you didn't have anything else to do. So I just am really grateful for what you're doing. Likewise. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Why don't you take a moment and let our listeners know where they can find you. ValerieSilvera.com. That's V-A-L-E-R-I-E. And then I went and married a Portuguese guy. So the spelling is all messed up. My last name is S-I-L-V-E-I-R-A. So ValerieSilvera.com. You can also go to WarriorsAndHope.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And hopefully maybe we'll get you back sometime. Sounds great. Thanks so much. And that's our interview with Valerie Silvera of Warriors and Hope. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction to the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictioninthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.